0: From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is attack surface management. Where will your next cybersecurity breach come from? Enterprises have more and more things attached to their internet, including ever-expanding networks and aging infrastructure, And as attackers become more creative, executives will have to as well. Two words for you, unknown unknowns. My guest is Matt Craning, who is the chief technology officer and co-founder of Expanse, which was recently acquired by Palo Alto Networks. Matt is an expert in large-scale optimization, distributed sensing, and machine learning algorithms run on massively parallel systems. Prior to co-founding Expanse, Matt worked for DARPA, including a deployment to Afghanistan. Matt holds PhD and master's degrees from Stanford University. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with Palo Alto Networks. Welcome, Matt.
1: Thank you so much. Very happy to be here.
0: So, from the very beginning, you're an expert in large-scale distributed sensing and machine learning algorithms run on massively parallel systems. How did that expertise lead you to co-found a company in the field of attack surface management?
1: Well, I'll say kind of a few things. Um, So attack surface management is is kind of what we wound up calling it, but it was actually a very long journey to that, and we didn't really set out knowing that that's exactly what it would be called or what precisely we would be doing. So uh, there's uh, not even a kind of Gartner category, which is a a certain way of kind of validating the existence of a market segment. Uh, That is actually still to be coming out. So uh, the field of attack surface management, we actually invented ourselves. And a lot of invention means that there's a lot of discovery going into that. So unlike a lot of both uh, kind of enterprise security and IT companies where in a lot of cases, uh, most companies founded are usually going into an existing market. They're doing usually kind of an incremental or evolutionary advancement on top of what has already been invented. We actually took another approach and said, really kind of with fresh eyes, what is not being served in the market today? And uh, really came up with the idea of, is the internet, with all of its promise, actually going to be a strategic liability for organizations, no longer just a strategic asset? And we developed a lot of uh, techniques and technologies to basically look at all of the internet as a data set. So to gather continuously information about the internet, which is really where Kind of our backgrounds came in both from uh, academia and then also from our work in the defense and intelligence communities. So at places like DARPA, um, at, at, at various places in the US intelligence agencies. And we said, actually, uh, there seems to be a whole bunch of stuff broken on the internet. And surprisingly, a lot of it is actually associated with very large, very important companies. And it was kind of scratching on that question that actually led us to both a uh, founding. Expanse and then also creating what, what would be the first and is the leading product in what is now known as attack surface management, which is really kind of understanding all of the assets that you have, understanding the risks that they might pose, and then also fixing problems. But back when we founded Expanse back in 2012, um, uh, we didn't know that it was going to be attack surface management. We didn't, we didn't even have the name attack surface management. Instead, it was very problem focused on we're seeing a lot of weird and uh, dangerous things on the internet and a lot of security vulnerabilities, Um, let's double click on that a lot and actually see if there's a way to build a business around that.
0: And how much the internet has changed in these nine short years, right? When you talk about that data set and and trying to find information of where the biggest security risks are, how hard was it to, to find? Did you kind of look around and see, oh, look... There's entire data sets you could track back easily to these companies they are leaking or things aren't secure.
1: I love the phrase, everything is obvious once you know the answer. (laughs) And I think initially, uh, one of the main challenges is that uh, in order to even show how large this problem is, you actually need to gather the data. And gathering the data is not easy, especially on a continuous or regular basis, you actually have to have... Um, a lot of systems engineering background, a lot of distributed systems background to actually gather data on everything. And I think what what made our approach unique is that we actually said, what if we gather data on every single system on the internet, which is actually enabled by um, a lot of both, you know, cost advantages enabled by things like cloud computing, but also um, software advantages, both in open source and things that we, we would write ourselves. And then rather than starting from kind of things that you know about a company and trying to assess their risk, we said, why don't we start with everything on the internet and then try to whittle it down to what is interesting. And uh, a lot of very good insights came out of that where, um, again, kind of almost by accident, we started discovering that we would actually find many, many more security problems than organizations actually knew about themselves. And when when I'm talking to organizations, I'm, I'm not talking, you know, Small businesses, um, although that can be true of them, I'm talking uh, military services. I'm talking uh, Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 10 companies, even the kind of largest, most complex, but also kind of you know best financed, most elite customers um, had problems for security. And what really kind of our discovery and our journey in creating the category and creating kind of attack surface management as an idea was really that we find all of these security vulnerabilities and all of these assets in far-flung places anywhere on the internet. And they will occur for a multitude of reasons, but it was, it was actually interesting because while the security challenges and security risks were very real, the real symptoms that we found that we discovered were actually that organizations did not have an effective means to, to track all of the assets that they had online and to simultaneously assess the security posture of those assets and to simultaneously uh, fix and remediate and mitigate the risks that those pose to the organization. And I think that was one of the very interesting things was that uh, looking back, we can now say, obviously, you want to do all of these activities. But because we were actually doing something new that had never been done before, it was a new category, um, we had to discover all of that, starting from the point of really... There's a, seems to be a lot of stuff broken on the internet. We don't exactly know why, but let's go investigate.
0: That's a good way of thinking of it. Um, starting with the a different place and then working your way backwards. So, Matt, according to a recent PwC survey of more than five thousand CEOs around the world, forty seven percent are extremely concerned about cybersecurity. Now. doesn't sound like a large number to me. Shouldn't it be closer to 100%?
1: Uh, I would say that every CEO I talk to is concerned about it on some level, and I think a lot depends on where they are. Overall, what we've noticed is a very large uptick, especially in the last five years, of the attentiveness of both uh, CEOs and boards of directors to cybersecurity issues, where I think... We've seen a lag, though I think there are a few exceptions in this area, is that a lot of the both tools and presentations um, that go, especially for executive audiences, for cybersecurity risk, um, uh, do not effectively convey everything that those people need to make effective decisions. And I think this is challenging for a variety of reasons, um, especially that a lot of CEOs and boards do not necessarily have the full technical background in order to do so. But I think it's also kind of been a failure to date in industry to be able to provide those tools. And I think we're going to see more and more changes there. Uh, I equate it to really kind of the state of finance before Sarbanes-Oxley that basically started to require CEOs to you know get training to actually and boards as well to start to understand certain financial metrics to actually have certain controls in place. I think at the high level, we're going to have to see something like that, um, you know, in the coming years, be implemented in some way to say that there are a minimum set of standards and that boards and uh, senior executives need to be kind of minimally conversant in some ways about uh, cybersecurity risk um, and uh, and kind of analysis of of those metrics. Um, right now, I've seen a lot of people say I am concerned about this, but then I also don't really know where to go next or. I'm conversant and we got, you know, a report, we hired some firm. They had this presentation that had a whole bunch of PowerPoint slides with a lot of charts that would have kind of Christmas tree lights that made <laughs> my brain melt and I could not really understand the concepts. So I think people get it but we're still in the early days of kind of how do you have effective controls over this and then how do you actually have programs that are robust around it again? We need to move In that direction, because more and more boards need to see this as a foundational aspect of their company, especially as pretty much all companies today, I don't care what industry and what size, um, your company actually runs on IT. Um, It's pretty much impossible these days to run almost any size company where if your IT goes down, your company is still able to run. And as a result, the understanding of cybersecurity at those levels. with attack surface think being you know, a part of that, is uh, very important for organizations to be able to understand because otherwise um, you will put your organization at a very large amount of risk by not being able to properly assess things like that.
0: Yeah, and that gets back to the old adage, every company is a technology company, but maybe this is more specific example of how it is. Yeah. So could you uh, briefly describe what attack surface management is, maybe perhaps for that executive audience?
1: The way that we describe attack surface management is it's effectively kind of a three-step process where all steps are kind of done continuously and form a cycle but it is a process and procedure by 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 which you or really kind of you know a vendor in this case uh, expanse or Alto networks uh, continuously discover all assets that an organization has in our case uh, from external attack surface all assets that you have on the public internet and that is a continuous process because at any given time, and I can go into this later, but at at any given time, new assets could appear from anywhere on the internet. So you need to have a continuous discovery process that says um, at any given time, I might not know everything about my assets. So I should have mechanisms to gather information about anywhere that they could be and try to associate them to my organization. Um, At the same time, as soon as an asset is discovered, you have to have means to evaluate it across a variety of different characteristics. Uh, in, in many cases, uh, if I've discovered a new asset, is this asset actually truly new? And if it is not, then uh, you know, matching, normalizing, deduplicating that with other things. If it is a new asset, then in most cases, it's actually going to be unmanaged. So how do I actually start a few of activities to say, this is an asset that exists of mine, but it usually exists outside of an intended set of security controls. So how do I start a process to both um, you know, assess what controls need to be put in place and then bring it under management? And the third part of evaluation is also understanding what is the risk that this poses immediately to my organization to help me prioritize activities. The final step is what, what we call mitigation. So once you've evaluated um, everything that you've discovered, uh, what do you actually do about it? What actions do you take? And how do you do so in highly automated and effective ways. And for us, there are uh, you know two primary steps that mitigation involves. So I mentioned prioritization, but it's one, bringing systems under management. In a lot of cases, what that also means is that for most systems associated with uh, our large customers, it actually means taking them either off the internet directly. So putting them behind a VPN or other sort of corporate device or making sure that they are then known and then up-to-date because in a lot of cases the real symptom of security problems that we find happens to be around the fact that an asset was just unmanaged for a very long time and may contain security vulnerabilities that were later discovered simply because you would have security patches that exist uh, for known security issues that had not been applied. Um, In certain cases such as zero-day attacks, it's actually just much more important to know where all the assets are so you can patch them as soon as possible. But for the uh, larger majority of assets that we discover for our customers and help manage their attack surface, the real problem is that the assets are just not known. And for executives, the the real key is that the existing processes and tools that a lot of companies use um, can be very good from a certain side of security, but they assume that networks are effectively a lot more static.
0: So what are the ramifications of an enterprise not knowing their
1: actual attack surface? The largest and most obvious one is uh, increased risk of breach. So I think it, it was an adage throughout a lot of the 2000s, um, helped on in no small part by vendors, that uh, you know everything started from email phishing. And there's very, very large email security vendors that still uh, pump this message that kind of every single security incident is effectively a phishing email and that, you know, humans are the weakest link when they're clicking on things and therefore buy more email security. Mm. Um, I don't think that's wrong. I think it's actually correct that email security is a big thing. You can buy it. But it's also much easier to mitigate, um, especially now with a lot of good tools like you Actually, have full visibility over all emails being sent to employees because they have to go through a central mail server. So it's actually a question of just uh, being able to detect bad things, but not actually needing to find out that there were, say, emails being sent that you didn't have visibility into. I think, in contrast, what we've seen, especially more recently um, over the last decade and really even the last five years, is some of the absolute worst breaches—the ones that cause you know hundreds of millions to billions of dollars damage are not coming from phishing. They are actually coming from usually unknown and uh, unmonitored assets that in many cases were actually on the public internet. So I think some of the uh, largest examples of this are actually things like the WannaCry attack, um, which caused, uh, is estimated, over $10 billion uh, worldwide in damage, Uh, shut down entire companies, including most of the healthcare system, Of the United Kingdom was back on pen and paper for actual days. And the real ramifications are, you have all these extra avenues to get in because there are so many more assets that are online that are not being tracked by organizations. And that is actually how attackers are getting in because it turns out that there are very efficient, automated ways for attackers to understand and kind of probe for and exploit these attack surfaces. Um, And the ramifications are, no, quite bold. You see, most of the healthcare of a first-world country reduced to pen and paper for days. Um, very, very serious because it's not just uh, hacking someone's email; it's actually hacking kind of the critical infrastructure of the network itself.
0: Speaking of critical infrastructure, another recent attack is the water treatment plant in Florida, where um, an attacker was able to remotely change the chemical makeup of the water to add lie to it, which could have poisoned an entire community. So then, infrastructure is an enormous issue, right, for very large companies like water treatment plants or oil and gas companies, et cetera.
1: Absolutely. And in, in that case, to the best of my understanding, the, the uh, attack vector there was actually a remote access server that uh, someone at that plant left open was on the internet and allowed someone to go in. And I think that's um, kind of a good segue that a lot of what attack service is about is they are we're finding ways in that are effectively kind of tools of it convenience but that are able to be subverted by attackers because the tools of it convenience are not hardened to the same degree as other things that are meant to be on the internet and are left out as a matter of course and uh we have this line that uh we like to view the internet in most ways as kind of what most of us experience through our web browsers or on our phone it's this really nice set up consumer experience and all the web pages we view look, look very nice and pleasing. And we go there and it's a good analogy to the physical world. Like, you know, I guess soon after we're all vaccinated from COVID, we'll be back, you know, shopping outside and, you know, you might go to a Starbucks and the store is really nice. You have this great experience, you know, you get your latte, you go out. But then if you look beneath all of uh, all, 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 all of the glitz on the streets, you actually have, you know, much older infrastructure, you have things like you know, sewer pipes and other things that are greasy and kind of cracking. And that's the infrastructure that supports uh, the kind of the more beautiful world on top. A lot of what, what we see as part of attack surface is kind of an IT analogy that most people view the internet really is just kind of what's in their web browser, what's on their phone, these nice consumer websites. But there's an entire back end IT infrastructure that supports that. And it's somewhat creaky, and it's not always well configured. And Without something like ASM, you have problems that you don't actually know the state of your network because it's so large, distributed, and complex. And as in the case with uh, Florida, which, by the way, was a smaller organization, it goes to the, it goes to the heart of how do you know that uh, something is not going on? Under any IT security policy, Like having a remote access service on the internet should not be allowed but it's very hard even for smaller organizations to get that kind of continuous visibility of what do I actually look like from the outside? What do I look to an attacker um, with kind of legacy tools?
0: And that's a good example of a, an attack. That's not a phishing attack. So it has nothing to do with the email. So while we're on the discussion of attacks, uh, most memorably this year, again, Solar Winds and Exchange, how would implementing ASM have changed those outcomes for organizations or, you know, how about those lucky organizations that actually understood their attack service management options and were able to find this and 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 thwart
1: the attack i'll speak with both because uh, you know a number of our customers had, had had both of those kinds of systems and we helped them respond i think ex- the microsoft exchange hacks um, and for and for your listeners kind of a bit of background there was a um a zero day or actually a set of zero days were announced for the for sets of versions of the Microsoft Exchange email services earlier in February and March of this year um very very dangerous because in effect uh these are the mail servers of an organization and if you followed this exploit chain uh what it basically allowed you to do was kind of send a message to a mail server to grant you effectively unfettered administrative access to the entire mail server and there were actually hundreds of thousands of these that we detected um, Online and effectively, uh, if you think about it, having an attacker being able to download uh, all or most of the corporate mail server and with all the these sensitive information that's stored there is a very serious attack. So what we noticed were actually two things: which was, for large organizations, they were very aware of this um, and they were patching very very rapidly. But there were a number of customers that we were able to help where they are so large that they actually don't even ha- they don't have one central set of mail servers so without expanse uh they wouldn't have been able to find even all of their mail servers and be able to patch them in time because they are so distributed they actually needed an inventory (laughs) of their even their mail servers and it's very hard to aggregate that in one central way unless you're using um, an asm tool like expanse because instead in a lot of cases you're using usually what results uh uh, is going to be, a I, I joke, kind of Microsoft's Outlook and Microsoft's Excel. You're, you're going to be sending emails to different business units. You're going to be asking IT leaders in those different business units. If they're patched, they will be sending emails and spreadsheets back. It's a very, very manual process. Um, so able to actually kind of you know identify that and, and really help them in in a very short order of like day <laughs> uh, find and be able to fix every single server they had on their Estate, which we think really, really changed an outcome because they could have been vulnerable for weeks in certain cases. Um, for Solar Winds as well, I think the details are a bit different because uh, not all Solar Winds assets are necessarily exposed to the internet, and also in a lot of cases they had been there for months. So as part of broader Palo Alto. We had uh, other products that were able to stop Solar Winds, um, the Solar Winds attack in particular. Um, our endpoint framework called XDR, but but even there for Solar Winds. Uh, once the attack was known, uh, customers still had the problem of they didn't even know where all of their solar wind servers were, which again go, go, goes, goes back to this inventory problem and using capabilities both like Expanse, um, other capabilities we now have as part of Palo Alto, we were able to actually help customers very rapidly understand everywhere they had a solar winds exposure so that they could mitigate that very quickly. So there was effectively kind of a two-step process of it. at Palo Alto, we were able to both prevent the attack on our customers, even without knowing that the supply chain had been breached. And then once it was more public, um, we were actually able to then also help everyone identify all of the servers that they had and uh, make sure that they were all up to date and uh, not infected with the uh, supply chain Trojan.
0: That's really interesting because some companies may be thinking, oh, well, we don't have water plants and aging infrastructure to worry about. But do you actually know where all your mail is stored and how many different servers they may be on in different cloud instances or wherever? And when you do only have a matter of hours to make this critical patch, how quickly can you do it?
1: Exactly. And a lot of the questions that I ask ask our customers are just kind of, you know, uh, how do you have confidence that effectively your systems are up to date? Answering even seemingly basic sounding questions with Existing IT, if you don't have Expanse or ASM, is actually surprisingly hard. And I'll, I'll give kind of another fun example of just, a, you know, I ask a chief information security officers this all the time. Um, how many routers does your organization have? Seems like a pretty basic question. Seems like, you know, at least to a very good approximation, the security team should, the IT team should probably know exactly how many routers they have. They're very important pieces of networking equipment. Um especially at the enterprise level, they're uh, more expensive. So it's not just kind of like that home Wi-Fi hotspot that we're used to. These things can cost uh, tens, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars to handle uh, enterprise-grade workloads. And what we find is that when you ask that question, there's actually usually not one central place where all that's tracked. Instead, it'll be tracked by local development and IT teams in different ways. It'll be tracked in multiple spreadsheets. There may be certain local IT management systems that know that, but at the end of it, if you said like, how many routers do you have right now? The process that they would use to answer that is not going into a system or logging in, it's actually starting an email chain. That's actually the uh, one of the main uh, you know, pr- problems that attack service management aims to solve is, how do you have actually a, kind of an accurate and up-to-date inventory of everything so that you can then build a variety of processes on top of that, including security. But if you don't have an up-to-date inventory, or you think you do, but you don't, then when you start to pull on that thread, a lot of business processes, a lot of IT processes, a lot of security processes that you wanna have apply across kind of your entire enterprise, all of a sudden you're realizing, wait, this, this actually is only being partially implemented because if I don't have a full inventory, how do I actually know what's going over all of my assets as opposed to just the assets I know about? And that's what we talk about when we say unknown unknowns. Um, as you mentioned at the top, it's I know some degree of my systems, but do I know all of them? That delta can be everything for organizations because most of their risk is in the parts of their network they did not even know to investigate. What other
0: data-driven decisions can be made from this sort of um, focus on actually knowing where all your assets are? Uh, How else can this help the business?
1: I think two areas that that this really helps organizations with is actually uh, cloud governance and M&A. Because in particular, these are very sprawling enterprises. So for a lot of our customers, they might actually have hundreds of different cloud accounts um, in the public cloud providers. So AWS, Azure, Oracle, Google, um, Alibaba, in a lot of cases. And uh, they had no way to actually rationalize this because they would have a whole bunch of different development teams and they couldn't get something in. So when they say that they are moving to the cloud, typical refrain from our customers will be like, yes, we are, we have deals with uh, Amazon and we're kind of hedging our bets a little bit. So we're also exploring Azure. So we're not solely locked into one cloud. Mm-hmm. What we find is that the average customer for Expanse is in 11 different infrastructure providers. Oh. I'm not talking SaaS, I'm talking places that you're actually get, like, renting the server, putting data on yourself, and it's kind of amazing and astronomical. And we can say, well, yeah, you, you are in Azure, you're all also in AWS. Did you know that you're also in DigitalOcean? You're also in Linode. You're also uh if, like your general manager in Europe probably put you in OVH or mm-hmm. Orange Hosting. Um you have something else in a Malaysian data center, not exactly sure what that is. <laughs> and that that's typical. Um one customer for us was actually in over a hundred different providers because they're a very large multinational. And I think that's one area that we see is that Again, kind of people's cloud governance plans versus cloud reality are dramatically different and helping them with that is really an enabling use case because it will enable them to move both kind of securely and quickly to the cloud. Um, second one is uh, mergers and acquisitions. So I think this is something that is you know increasingly happening as a lot of industries are consolidating. There's a lot of M&A activity more recently, but that um, when you think about it, the an M&A is one of the largest IT change events an organization can have, especially if it's a large acquisition. So um, I know a little bit about this, having recently gone through this process with talented networks on ourselves <laughs> on the other side of the table, but the number of things you have to integrate is quite large. And in the case of Expanse, we're integrating with you know a top security company in the world, and also we are relatively small. So the integration headaches have been Almost non existent. It's been a really great process. But for larger organizations where you might, an organization with 50,000 people is acquiring an organization with 10,000 people, (laughs) the number of different steps you have to go through, the amount of IT that you have to transfer, the amount of legacy that you have to kind of understand is gigantic. And in a lot of ways, uh, these are kind of, in many cases, only kind of partially implemented because as an acquirer, you might not even know where all the assets you're acquiring are. Um, As an example, for uh, one of our, for um, an airline, there was a series of mergers and we were actually able to find assets that of the merged airline that no longer exists, but we're still on the internet more than a decade after the merger, which wow. gives you an idea of just how long some of these things take. So that's the, the other side that we really help with our customers is actually understanding when you actually acquire an asset, how do you actually complete that process? How do you measure it? How do you monitor it? Um, And how do you do that kind of at the scale of the Internet rather than with kind of a lot of consultants, Excel spreadsheets, pieces of paper and emails?
0: So from our conversation today, I feel like this is the if you don't know what you don't know, you should really figure it out um, kind of warning if you haven't heard it before. But there are glimmers of hope in this. Right. Because if the asset exists, you can at least find it, track it and assess what you're going to do with it, mediate any changes you need to make or um, assess it to, to bring it back to full cybersecurity compliance. What gives you hope about what's possible after seeing the first three months of this year and what's, what's happened with attacks, um, the ongoing issues that we're going to have? But there is opportunity there, right? There is hope. So, so what are you seeing that makes you, you know, optimistic about cybersecurity and what we're looking for in the next five years?
1: Yeah, I'm actually quite optimistic in even the medium and in not even the long term, but even the medium term, I think kind of even three, four years out. Near term, definitely, you know, there's going to be some rough seas ahead. But here's what makes me most optimistic. One, um, I think that this is actually a solvable problem, largely with a lot of technology that's being developed. And by that, it is clear that once you know a problem exists, actually fixing it is uh, is actually rather straightforward. There's a lot of mechanistic steps to get better at that. There's a lot of automation can be put on that. And there's a lot of things coming to bear, but that in, a, in many cases, the actual hard part is seeing what you actually need to fix and knowing all the set of problems and then being able to prioritize them effectively and then and then start working on them. And I think in particular, the things that I've seen are, I think within the industry, I think there are a lot of technologies in the few years that are gonna kind of meet the marketing hype <laughs> that has been around four years. So um, you know, I talk a lot with industry partners. Like we use, you know, substantial amounts of data. We even have uh, you know, with my background where I have a PhD from Stanford in effectively operations research and machine learning. Um, We actually do use some real actual machine learning in our products. We also use a lot of heuristics as well. We use, you know, I I kind of joke that we sometimes have machine learning classifiers to solve a problem. Other times we have SQL queries that solve Mm -hmm. a problem. And like we have some really well-written SQL queries. Like I'm very proud of those. (laughs) but I think that the industry itself, especially in marketing material, you would think that everything in cybersecurity is this, you know, automated, AI, ML-enabled everything. And in most cases, but not all, but in a lot across the industry, this is actually especially true in startups, but it's just kind of a lie and a fiction. And what companies really call AI are just kind of standard software rules. <laughs> and there's really nothing special going on. Or uh, there's an old joke that, oh, I have this great AI thing. What is it? Well, we have a bunch of analysts um, that are former intelligence officers, usually in Maryland or you know outside of Tel Aviv. And they're the ones doing everything. But we have a system that efficiently routes work to them. And that's our AI. <laughs> and you're like, wait, that's, that's people. <laughs> um, but I think what I've seen is that one automation, broadly defined, is a real thing. What automation actually means kind of on the ground is you take something that previously took, you know, hours and days and 10 people. And then with software right now, it's more so how do you take that down to 15 minutes and two or three people? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we're going to see even larger gains where you can start to take humans out of the loop entirely in certain business processes. And I think what we're seeing, and this is uh, a lot of what we're, we're working on and I'm working on now is that over the next, uh, you know, months and years, actual large scale machine learning capability is actually being deployed in production. I think there are some that are out there in piecemeal. There's a lot more rules than anyone wants to talk about, but we are now seeing there's enough assemblage of data. There's enough, uh, normalization of data in that, especially at the larger companies and that enterprises are more willing to share information with vendors if it demonstrably improves the security service that they are getting, that we are actually going to be able to deploy increasingly sophisticated capabilities along those lines and kind of have the product reality match, um, I think, what at least the broader industry marketing zeitgeist had been. And I've seen a lot of them. They are very, very real, (laughs) and they're very much coming and they're coming at kind of an industrial scale for defenders. And I think that's what I'm most excited about because despite the, the fact that uh, there's the old adage of, you know, attackers need to be right once defenders need to be right uh, all the time. Um, increasingly, it is now more scalable for defenders to be right um, m- much of the time and to actually set up Uh, very vast monitoring networks so that if the attackers slip up once, the defenders can completely wipe them out in that attack. And that will kind of both, uh, you know, asymmetrically affects cost and also I think will help tilt the field back to defense. I think uh, when you had kind of partial AI solutions and ML solutions and partial automation, it helped attackers much more because they could kind of duct tape together a few different parts, scale up certain things very, highly, and then kind of just see what came back to them in a great way. I think defenders are going to be able to have similar capabilities that are effective because they actually cover everything going on in an enterprise. And uh, that's going to allow us to turn the tide.
0: Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. And what has been a fantastic conversation on the Business Lab. That was Matt Craning, the chief technology officer and co-founder of Expanse, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can also find us in print on the web And events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.